Um, today's reading is from Luke chapter 4, verses uh, 21 to 30. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself, and you will say, Do hear also in your hometown the things that you have heard, that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were many with a skin disease in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they may hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Well, those of you who link with me um, on, on Facebook uh, will not only know that I uh, fell over and twisted my ankle, you may also have uh, noticed that in the uh, little biography section that you get uh, to put something about yourself, I have included there um, my personal motto and my personal vision statement. For me, it, it's a kind of way of trying to keep myself publicly accountable for the things that I want to say I'm committed to. Um, the vision statement is fairly straightforward and was actually written here at Bloomsbury when we were writing our church vision statement. I don't know if some of you remember, we had a series of meetings uh, way back before the pandemic, uh, back in 2019, where we were facilitated in some discussions trying to arrive at what Bloomsbury's vision statement might be. Uh, does anybody know what Bloomsbury's vision statement is? It's on the front of the order of service, what is it? <laughs> Provoking faith in the heart of London. Great. And as part of that, we were also invited to think about what, what we might want to say about our lives and our personal commitments. And I, I came up with four points that I want to own for my life. Thinking carefully. Feeling deeply. Living joyfully. And acting intentionally. There we go. That was my personal vision statement. Um, I try to take this seriously in my life and ministry. And if you've not done this before, I commend to you the task of trying to draft something for yourself if you've never done this before. What kind of a person, what kind of a follower of Jesus do you want to be? And how are you going to find ways of then helping hold yourself to those aspirations? But um, if you read beyond this on my Facebook bio, you get to my motto, which is a little bit more obscure, I must admit, not least because it's in Latin. 
some of you may have done Latin at school. I did for about three years. I can vaguely remember some of it. Um, of course, we have our classicist in our church secretary down here. Uh, but it's uh, Nemo Propheta in Patria. Nemo Propheta in Patria. Does anyone want to have a guess at what this might mean? Can you get there, Nigel? No, you're listening. No prophet in the fatherland, absolutely. It's the Latin version of the saying that Jesus mentions in our reading this morning. A prophet is not without honour, except in his own hometown. And there's a very specific story about why I chose this as a, as a little phrase that means something to me. Um, and it goes back to the story of my baptism at the age of 14 uh, at the Vine Baptist Church in Sevenoaks, a church I have been attending since before I was born uh, and where my mother still attends. She was church secretary there for a number of years uh, fairly recently. And you may be familiar with the practice that some churches have of um, in the baptismal pool, the, the minister giving the baptismal candidate uh, a special verse. Some ministers place great store by this. It's not something I've actually tended to do in my own uh, baptismal practice, but the minister of my hometown did it for me. And normally it's something uplifting, something a bit encouraging, something to sustain the newly baptized person through the months and years following their baptism. Well, in my case, what I got was something rather different. There I was in the pool, having just made my confession that Jesus is Lord, and the minister turns to me and said, Simon, remember this. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. He didn't say it in Latin, but honestly, he might as well have done. My mind had just about had time to articulate a kind of startled what on earth as then the waters of baptism closed over my head. Well, in the years since, I have pondered this strange verse and perhaps the fact that my experience was so odd has meant that it's not been my regular practice to do this for others. Um, when I was ordained uh, back in 1999, in the previous millennium, uh, Brian Haynes, formerly of this parish, who had been my principal at Bristol Baptist College, asked me what passage I would like him to preach on for my ordination. So, of course, I gave him this one. And he preached, as I'm sure those of you who remember and know Brian can imagine, a very fine sermon on what it means to be called to ministry as a prophet with honour. And here we're not talking about a prophet as someone who sees the future, but rather someone who sees the present as God sees it. Someone who speaks God's truth into a disordered world. And so Brian challenged me in my ministry to be a prophet with honour. And I hope my vision statement captures something of that desire. And there's something that I've learned over the years Sometimes it's much easier to be a prophet when the people I'm speaking to don't know me quite so well. I find that I can stand in front of a group of strangers and fearlessly proclaim the word of God and on the whole I get pretty good instant respect. It's one of the joys of being invited to address a church where you're not known. You kind of do the hit and run preach. You go in, you proclaim the word, everybody goes, oh, that was amazing, and then you go away again. I mean, we've had a couple of recent hit-and-run preachers here at Bloomsbury, haven't we? We've had Jim, and we had Stephen, and people who've come in and said wonderful messages to us at Bloomsbury, and then they've gone away again. 
And then this week, you're stuck back with Simon again. When the people know you well, it kind of adds a different tone because you really start to have to be accountable to them. Not just for how you do when you're stood, well, it's not quite six foot above contradiction here, is it? Two and a half foot above contradiction. But how you are on Monday and Tuesday and Saturday. And suddenly the complexities of the relationships we have are part of the dynamic. And it's no longer just the prophet proclaiming the word, but it's actually us together discerning what God is saying. The most difficult church for me to preach in over the years has been the Vine Baptist Church in Seven Oaks. The church I started attending before I was born, the church where I was dedicated as a baby, the church where my faith grew and was nurtured, the church where I sensed a call to ministry myself, the church where I was baptised, the church my mum still goes to. Of all the churches in this world, it is still the Vine Baptist Church Seven Oaks where I feel most at home. And even though these days there are a good number of people in the congregation who are unknown to me, I mean, I would hope so. I left there 30 years ago. But there are still quite a lot who I know. They're a bit more grey and a bit more doddery. But my mum's generation are still there. So when I go back there to preach, as I have occasionally been invited to do over the years, I find myself anxious in a way that I rarely encounter elsewhere. I find myself standing kind of metaphorically naked before them. You know, I've got all my qualifications and training and experience and all of that just kind of flows away because they remember Simon the teenager. Simon who used to climb on the pews. Simon, who used to go out with Melanie when he was nine and everybody thought it was cute. You know, all of that stuff is there. And I think in today's reading from Luke's Gospel, we find Jesus having his equivalent of going back to the Vine Baptist Church, Seven Oaks, to preach. And we get this same saying coming out. No prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. I think actually my minister when I was a teenager had a point. He knew that I needed to move on, to get away, to find new contexts. And here we have Jesus going back to Nazareth, the town where he'd grown up, where everybody knew him and his brothers and could remember all the stories of what he got up to when they were teenagers. People saying, isn't this Joseph the carpenter's son? Who does he think he is standing up in the synagogue and preaching the word of God? It can be very hard to be a prophet in your hometown. And yet for most of us, most of the time, this is of course exactly what we are called to do. For most of us, London is our at least adopted hometown. Bloomsbury is, for most of us, our home church. We know each other. We know each other for good and for bad. We know the joys and the sorrows. We know what we're like on a Monday or on a Saturday. 
how are we to be prophets in our home church, our home city? It's only some of us, and then only sometimes, who have the calling to go and exercise ministry out there or over there. For the rest of us, and you know, this is true for me too now. I mean, Bloomsbury is my home. I've been here for 10 years. I, I love you all most of the time. You love me some of the time. We know each other, don't we? This is our community. This is our church. This is our city. This is our community expressing the body of Christ together. And it is here in this place that we too, as those who are, we are all called to be prophets, are we not? We too encounter what Jesus encountered at Nazareth, which is that it can be very hard to be a prophet in your hometown. There are some amongst us who have grown up here. People who've been around for many years, remembered as teenagers. It can be very hard to be accepted and welcomed by the congregation you've grown up in into a position of leadership. Uh, I know Nickwith isn't with us this morning, uh, our mum is, but Nickwith, of course, is one of our deacons, and isn't it just wonderful that Nickwith, who grew up here as a child, is now in a position of leadership in our church? Uh, who else have we got? Roland, you grew up here. You're, you're now one of our significant people in this fellowship. And it's tough sometimes, isn't it, to remain in the church that you've known as a child. For others of us, we've come in later in life and made this place our home. But some people have come into this church at a time of weakness and vulnerability. And it can be very hard for that person who has come in with a certain script that they're living in their life at that point, to shed all the preconceptions with this, that come with this, and to enter fully into the life of the church as an equal partner. Do people always, there's that worry, isn't it? Are people remembering me when I was at my most vulnerable, at my weakest? It can be hard for those of us who have grown accustomed to a certain way of doing things, to find the courage to give voice to the inner conviction that something must change. Longevity in a community poses its complexities, and this is part of what is behind what Jesus faces when he goes back to his home community. And yet, we have to remember that the voices of the prophets do not always come from the centre. The prophet is not always the one on the platform. You only have to look at the Old Testament to see that the voices of the prophets come from the margins more often than they come from the centre. The voices which proclaim the word of the Lord to the rest of us and which challenge us in the name of God to rise up from our sedate sense of security and self-satisfaction are not always the voices from the front. And so we need to learn to listen to one another, to listen to those people who we might write off, to the quiet people, to the people who don't speak out easily, because when they do say something, it might just be them that God is speaking through. 
if the church is to retain its prophetic edge, we must not miss the voice of Jesus who comes to us to challenge and change us and call us into new ways of being because that voice is coming from an unexpected corner of the room. And this is the tragedy of the reception which Jesus encountered in Nazareth. He came to bring healing and wholeness, to bring release to those in captivity and good news to the poor. And yet those in his hometown, the people he loved, those who had nurtured him in his faith, failed to receive the ministry that he came to bring. They loved him all right at the start, okay? Here he is, look at him, local boy made good, preaching in the synagogue and doing ever such a good job. As Luke tells us, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came out of his mouth. It's almost as if at the earlier stage of this story, Jesus was something of a curiosity for the people of Nazareth. There's something of a hint of patronization there, isn't there? The fact that those listening to him were amazed at his gracious words, as if this is something unexpected from one of their own, but the spell doesn't last long. Jesus hasn't come back to Nazareth to perform circus tricks to amaze a skeptical crowd. He's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and that is a prophet's task. Not a job for someone seeking affirmation from their old friends. And so when those listening to Jesus started down the, isn't this Joseph's son line? He came straight out with a direct challenge to their disbelieving and patronizing attitude. Jesus said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor cure yourself, and you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did in Capernaum. And here Jesus cuts right to the heart of the matter as he had a tendency to do. What he said next highlighted their attitude for what it really was. The people in Nazareth didn't want to listen to Jesus. Not really. They didn't want to listen to what he was really saying. Because of his proclamation that the year of the Lord's favour had arrived, they didn't want to listen to him because he brought good news to the poor or release to the captives or recovery of sight to the blind. Not a bit of it. They wanted just to see if the reports of a local boy doing impressive things in a town 20 miles away were true. They wanted to see whether he would perform the same tricks for them back home in Nazareth that he'd done in Capernaum. And to their great loss, they couldn't see past the image of a local boy made good to the true picture of a prophet sent from God. And so they missed his message. And so Jesus, recognizing this, quotes to them another saying, almost in despair. Truly I tell you, he says, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But he doesn't give up on them at this point either. Rather, he decides to have another go at communicating his message, at leading them out of their parochial mindset into an appreciation of the universal nature of the kingdom that he had come to announce. And so he uses his despairing cry about a prophet not being accepted in his hometown as a springboard into a couple of stories about two of the great prophets of Jewish history, Elijah and Elisha. And Jesus reminds those listening to him that Elijah 
was sent away from his hometown and indeed away from his home country to Zarephath in Sidon, into the heartland of the territory where they worshipped the god Baal. And Elijah had gone there to bring food to a widow there. You can read the story in the Old Testament if, if you don't know it. And Jesus makes the point that Elijah bypassed all the needy widows of Israel, who were also experiencing famine, to go out of Israel into foreign territory to bring food to a widow there. And then he moves on and he reminds them that Elisha brought healing to Naaman the Syrian, but not to the many lepers living in Israel. The point Jesus is making is clear. Just because a prophet lives somewhere doesn't mean that those who live there have a monopoly on the word of God. Just because you grew up somewhere or have made your home somewhere doesn't mean they own you. Jesus is directly challenging the attitudes of those in his hometown of Nazareth who thought that they owned him because they knew his father, the carpenter. But it does more than this. It doesn't just challenge their attitude towards Jesus. It also exposes their flawed attitude towards God. You see, just as those in Nazareth thought that they owned Jesus, so also many in Israel thought that they owned God. And by drawing a comparison between the way his own ministry was received or not received in Nazareth and the way Elijah and Elisha went beyond Israel and out into Gentile territory to perform the works of God, Jesus was making a very sharp point. He was saying to those listening to him in Nazareth, you do not own me and neither do you own God. He was saying that his ministry was bigger than Nazareth. And that God's calling goes far beyond Israel. And this was not a message that the Jews of Nazareth in the first century wanted to hear. They didn't want their nice, safe, secure worldview to be shattered. They wanted to own Jesus, their local boy made good. They wanted to own their God, the God of their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, what they struggled to deal with was a local boy, a carpenter's son, for goodness sakes, coming into their synagogue and shattering their worldview by stating that their God was the God of the Gentiles also. And so, of course, Jesus saying about a prophet not being accepted in his own town was proved true. And the people in the synagogue were so filled with rage that they took Jesus from the place of worship up to a cliff so that they might hurl him to his death. They could not cope with his challenging of their accepted world view, with his shaking up of the status quo, with his message that God is so much bigger than they had thought God to be. At which point Jesus just walks away. He walks through the crowd, he slips off, he leaves them to their self-righteous anger and their murderous intent. And he goes to seek others who will grasp the nature, the radical nature of his proclamation of the year of the Lord's favour. And so to conclude, what about us? 
How will we respond when the word of God comes to us and challenges our preconceptions to their core? Because that is what the word of God does, time and time again. Wherever we think we have got God nailed down and understood, we find that God goes beyond that and the words of the prophets invite us to go beyond whatever boundary we have put around our understanding of God. Whoever it is that we might think is unacceptable to God, and you can answer that yourselves, but whoever it is that you think God does not go to, the word of the prophets is that God is already there doing something new in the lives of those whom others would exclude. How will we respond when we hear Jesus saying to us ever so directly that we don't own him and we don't own God? How will we respond to the prophets amongst us who are probably speaking from the margins of our community when they make us feel uncomfortable? When they don't fit what we think a prophet ought to be. When they threaten our neatly ordered world. Or, how willing are we, how willing are you, to be those prophets? Because it's not an easy calling to put your own standing within a community, maybe your own future on the line, to proclaim the justice and righteousness of God's kingdom. How willing are we, as a community, to risk our reputations in order to bring good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, and release to those in captivity? I'm telling you now, this is not a calling that wins us friends in high places. How willing are we to do battle with those who claim to own God? And to show by our words and actions that in the name of Jesus Christ, God is bigger than we or anybody else can possibly imagine. That God recognises no boundaries be they boundaries of politics, economics, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, or social status. None of that matters to God. None of that excludes anyone from God's radical and inclusive love. So how willing are we to be the prophets in our time here in this place and through this place and in our lives, challenging the world in the name of Jesus Christ, just as we hear the challenges of the prophets to us as they speak to us. Can we proclaim the message of the one who said, today, here and now, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The year of the Lord's favour has arrived. Amen. This is the prayer of praise and thanksgiving.
It is a manifestation that even during hard times, we're able to praise God to remember what God has done. Let us pray. Father God, it is you who have set the captives free. It is you who have silenced the lions in the den. It is you who have made the lame to walk and the blind to see. You are the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we will not bow down to the gods of the king. For your word promotes freedom, peace, and understanding. Almighty God, we praise you in your sanctuary and in your mighty heavens. We praise you for your act of power and healing, recognizing your greatness, O oh God. We praise you with songs and dancing, all instruments. We praise you. Your name surpasses all other names. Some will call you the Prince of Peace. Others may say you are the way maker. While others may also say the bright and morning star. You are the beginning and the end. Praise be to your holy name. In the midst of hardship, O oh God, fears, uncertainty, and conflict, we praise you. Thank you for your loving kindness, your direction, your wisdom, and your plan for mankind. Teach us to study your word. Guide us when we falter. Induce strength in us when we show weakness. Praise the Lord. We thank you that the government around the world are becoming conscious of economic and social divides that they are finding new ways to help their fellow citizens. We thank you that so many things have been achieved in raising the issues of inequalities and injustice, and with the courage to continue through goodwill. We pray for our environment and the effect of climate change that affects millions of people around the world. You have blessed us with beautiful planet Earth but our way of life is destroying our habitat. We pray for your intervention and to find new ways to live in harmony with nature. Praise your holy name. We pray for the people of Pakistan, where many have lost their lives due to flooding and that those struggling will receive the much needed help to rebuild their lives. We pray for the new UK government that will assume power next week, that their agenda will be to serve and only to serve. We continue to pray for the peoples of Ukraine and Russia, that peace and understanding will prevail. Lord, we pray for the members of Bloomsbury, that you will continue to guide us as we fulfill the mission of the church as together we are stronger. We praise your mighty name. Praise the Lord. Amen and amen. Amen.
So go into God's world with love, hope, faith and joy in your hearts. And may the blessing of Almighty God, Creator, Redeemer and Sustainer, be with you all today and forevermore. Amen.